Hello everyone and welcome to the September 28th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Fols, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal ruled that a company's safety shoe warranty program violates workers' compensation law. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of Lewings versus Chipotle Mexican Grill. Chipotle Mexican Grill implemented a Shoes for Crews program in which employees were permitted to buy shoes directly from Shoes for Crews or through a payroll deduction program. This is considered a safety program or good safety practice by workers' compensation carriers. Based on its employees wearing SFC shoes, Chipotle obtained a reduction in its workers' compensation premiums. Shoes for Crews also extended warranties to Chipotle to cover certain medical expenses in slip and fall related workers' compensation cases. At one point, Shoes for Crews paid $25,000 to offset the cost of medical bills arising from injuries sustained by Chipotle employees. Ashanti Lewings filed a class action against her employer claiming this program violated a labor code provision which prohibits employees from receiving a contribution from an employee directly or indirectly to cover any part of the costs of workers' compensation. Chipotle demurred, arguing that labor code sections 3751 and 52 do not prohibit safe workplace programs that are voluntary, nor do they prohibit third-party warranty reimbursements. The trial court sustained the demur without leave to amend, and the class action was dismissed. But the Court of Appeal reversed in the unpublished case. The primary issue was whether Chipotle violated Labor Code Sections 3751, a statute which prohibits employers from receiving a contribution from an employee directly or indirectly to cover any part of the costs of workers' compensation. The court noted that any time Chipotle is self-insured or has insurance, the warranties directly cover the costs of compensation by paying medical expenses. Thus, When the employees purchased SFC shoes, they indirectly contributed to the costs of compensation. The Court of Appeal also ruled that the exclusive remedy bars a widow's death claim caused by asbestos taken home from work. Here's what happened in the published case of Melendrez v. Emeron International Corporation. Melendrez worked for Amaron in Pasadena for 24 years and was exposed to asbestos while manufacturing pipe products. He died in 2011 of asbestos-related mesothelioma. His wife and children filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Amaron and argued that Mr. Melendrez was exposed to asbestos at home through waste or scrap pipe that Amaron permitted him to take home for personal projects such as making flower parts and part of a patio. Amaron argued that workers' comp was the exclusive remedy for the family. 
The Superior Court agreed with the employer and granted summary judgment, finding that Mr. Melendrez's death was work-related and the exclusive remedy applied. The family unsuccessfully appealed, and the Court of Appeal sustained the dismissal in the published case of Melendrez v. Amaron International Corporation. The appeals court said that it is undisputed that Melendrez's exposure to asbestos in his employment with Amaron substantially contributed to his mesothelioma. Therefore, under the contributing cause standard applicable in workers' compensation law, his mesothelioma is covered by workers' comp. And his separate exposure at home does not create a separate injury outside of the workers' compensation coverage. Thus, the uh, plaintiff's lawsuit is barred by workers' compensation exclusivity. The court also upheld an award of more than $80,000 to be paid by the family to Amaron for costs and fees as a result of their rejection of a CCP 998 offer to allow judgment in the lower court. The Third District Court of Appeal clarified the burden of proof for a total disability award. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of Hallmark Marketing Corporation versus WCAB and Gannon. In 2000, Carol Ann Gannon injured her low back, neck, and bilateral carpal tunnels while working for Hallmark Marketing Corporation. Permanent disability was evaluated using the 1997 disability rating schedule. She had motion segment loss at two lumbar spine levels after two surgical fusions and has what her doctors called a failed back syndrome with chronic pain. The AME reported that Gannon would be unable to sustain six to eight hours of work every day in a constructive, productive, and consistent fashion, but she would need to take breaks and spread the workday into a longer period. The Disability Evaluation Unit Rader concluded that an industrial injury that limits working only from the home is equivalent to a sheltered workshop or sheltered workplace and rates 100% permanent disability. The work comp judge awarded 100% disability but disagreed with the reasoning of the Rader and applied a different legal standard. The work comp judge concluded that if a worker is 100% disabled, if having to work from home is necessitated by limitations that also render the employee unable to compete in the open labor market. On reconsideration, the WCAB affirmed the 100% award based upon the DEU rationale and did not adopt the work comp judge's legal standard. The Court of Appeal reversed, finding that the work comp judge indeed used the correct legal standard. The applicant has the initial burden under this standard to show that she can work only from home in work that is not generally available. 
if the applicant meets this burden, the burden then shifts to the employer to establish the applicant's ability to compete in the open labor market by showing there is work available in that the applicant can perform. A lean finder website has been created to clean up the aftermath of the unsuccessful Angelotti lean litigation. SB 863 in part was designed to combat an acute lien crisis by imposing a $100 lien activation fee on liens filed prior to January 1, 2013. Angelotti Chiropractic and others sued in federal court challenging the constitutionality of these provisions. The trial court issued a preliminary injunction in Angelotti's favor. But the defendants appealed, and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal reversed last June and vacated the injunction in the published case of Angelotti Chiropractic versus Christine Baker. However, the lien claimants filed a petition for rehearing in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal. There's not yet any ruling on the rehearing petition. The California Society of Industrial Medicine and Surgery, or CSIMS, is the association exclusively representing the private physician practicing occupational medicine in California. Apparently assuming that the petition for rehearing will be denied, it has announced a new website, www.leanactivation.com, to assist lien holders to identify unresolved liens. According to its website, pending final resolution of the Angelotti litigation, all unresolved liens filed prior to January 1, 2013 are subject to a $100 lien activation fee. This website claims to easily identify all unactivated liens no matter how or when liens were filed. And now our crime report. A federal grand jury indicted 54-year-old Oakland resident Daniel Rush for taking illegal payments as a union employee, honest services fraud, attempted extortion, and money laundering. Rush is alleged to have illegally used his position as a union organizer with the United Food and Commercial Workers Union to obtain money and other things of value. Rush was an organizing coordinator of the Medical Cannabis Division of the Union. The indictment further charges Rush with taking kickbacks from attorney Mark Tarbeek, an Oakland workers' compensation attorney, in exchange for arranging for the attorney to represent clients in workers' compensation matters. Rush was an officer and director of an advocacy organization for the working poor. Rush directed the organization's referral of workers' compensation claimants to this attorney. In exchange, the attorney allegedly provided Rush with a credit card on which Rush charged thousands of dollars of personal expenses, which ultimately were paid by the attorney. Rush also is charged with attempted extortion. Rush was a member of the Berkeley Medical Cannabis Commission, which is a commission of the city of Berkeley organized to facilitate the appropriate licensing and regulation of medical marijuana in the city. 
Rush demanded a well-compensated job from a prospective medical marijuana dispensary in exchange for his influence as a member of the commission. In addition, the indictment alleges that Rush engaged in a conspiracy to commit money laundering. Rush and the attorney allegedly engaged in a series of structured transactions designed to obscure the origin of the money. The case is being prosecuted by the Special Prosecutions and National Security Unit of the U.S. Attorney's Office in San Francisco and is investigated by the FBI. And in medical news, the California Department of Insurance, together with the University of California, San Francisco, and Consumers Reports, announced the launch of a California Healthcare Compare website. This is a web-based tool that offers quality and price information in a consumer-focused, easy-to-use website. The California Department of Insurance obtained Federal Affordable Care Act grant funds to enhance transparency in healthcare pricing. The CDI then partnered with the University of California, San Francisco, and Consumer Reports to create California Healthcare Compare. California Healthcare Compare allows consumers to compare hospital and medical group quality in the areas of maternity care, hip and knee replacement, back pain, colon cancer screening, and diabetes. The site also reveals estimated regional costs for more than 100 different medical procedures or conditions. Consumer Reports also provides expert tips and advice on how to navigate the healthcare system. Consumer Reports sought out and incorporated feedback from thousands of consumers on issues of navigation and usability, resulting in a tool that makes complex data on quality and costs easy to digest. Increasing cost and quality transparency in California medicine is a positive move for consumers and third-party payers and will ultimately drive marketplace change. This website could not be possible in most states because the information simply is not available. A new Institute of Medicine report says that diagnostic errors cause 10% of patient deaths. The report is a continuation of the prior landmark Institute of Medicine reports to Air is Human, Building a Safer Healthcare System, published in 2000, and Crossing the Quality Chasm, a new health system for the 21st century, published in 2001. The committee concluded that most people will experience at least one diagnostic error in their lifetime, sometimes with devastating consequences. And diagnostic errors cause about 10% of patient deaths. Studies of patient medical records also suggest that 6 to 17% of adverse events or harms that occur to patients during a hospital stay resulted from diagnostic errors. And in the current hospital culture, many doctors are not aware of the errors they make. The report says that diagnostic errors persist throughout all settings of care and continue to harm an unacceptable number of patients. Diagnostic errors have many causes, including 
inadequate collaboration and communication among clinicians, patients, and their families. A healthcare work system that is not well designed to support the diagnostic process. Limited feedback to clinicians about diagnostic performance and a culture that discourages transparency and disclosure of diagnostic errors. To address such problems, the committee concluded that improving diagnosis will require a collaboration and a widespread commitment to change among healthcare professionals, healthcare organizations, patients and their families, researchers and policymakers. A new veterans' healthcare study reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association finds that postoperative telehealth visits are effective. People may happily and safely forego in-person doctor's visits after surgery by opting instead for talking with their surgeons by phone or video. Most patients preferred the virtual visits and the doctors did not miss any infections that popped up after the surgery. Telehealth can increase access to health care while also decreasing the costs associated with traveling to office visits. Past research has found that telehealth visits may be useful in the treatment of chronic conditions after surgery, but unless is known about patients' preferences for these types of visits. The study team evaluated data from 23 veterans who were seen three times after a simple operation that would require only a night or so in the hospital. One visit was by way of video, the second was by way of telephone, and the third was an in-person office visit. The researchers found that no post-operation infections were missed. One patient was having problems and was brought into the clinic and was treated for an infection. Overall, 69% of the participants said they preferred a telehealth visit over the traditional in-office visit. Those who preferred the telehealth visit tended to live farther away from the hospital than those who would prefer to come into the office. The authors cautioned the study was very small and also cannot assess how telehealth visits would work for patients who have undergone more complex surgeries. The reputation of the biopharmaceutical industry continues to be battered by a new twist from the hands of Martin Screlly, the CEO of Turing Pharmaceuticals and a former hedge fund manager. He raised the price of a 60-year-old generic drug, Darafim, acquired by his company in August from $13.50 to $750 a tablet overnight. Screlly's actions are being viewed as typical drug company behavior and yet another example of the industry's price gouging. Darafrim was originally discovered, developed, and manufactured by GlaxoSmithKline. The Daraprim patent expired decades ago, and the drug is now generic. However, it is a small product, and no real competition has arisen. In 2010, GlaxoSmithKline sold the marketing rights for Daraprim to Core Pharma. 
Sales of Diaprim were less than $1 million a year in 2010, based upon a price of about $1 a pill. Corpharma raised the price to $13.50 a pill, which itself was surprising. But given the importance of the drug and the modest number of prescriptions per year, there was little complaint. However, a series of deals brought Daraprim to Turing Pharmaceuticals, and the price was immediately increased to $750 a pill. Turing's price increase is not an isolated example. Although some price increases have been caused by shortages, others have resulted from a business strategy of buying old, neglected drugs and turning them into high-priced specialty drugs. Psilocerine, a drug used to treat dangerous, multidrug-resistant tuberculosis, was just increased in price to $10,800 for 30 pills from $500 after its acquisition by Rodellis Therapeutics. Valiant Pharmaceuticals acquired two heart drugs, Isopril and Nitropress from Marathon Pharmaceuticals and promptly raised their prices by 525% and 212% respectively. Marathon had acquired the drugs from another company in 2013 and had quintupled the prices. Another drug, Doxycycline, an antibiotic, went from $20 a bottle in October 2013 to $1,849 by April 2014. This is not the first time the 32-year-old Scancrelli has been the center of controversy. In 2011, Mr. Scancrelli started another company, Retrofin, which also acquired old neglected drugs and sharply raised their prices. Retrofin's board fired Mr. Scancrelli a year ago. Last month, it filed a complaint in federal district court in Manhattan accusing him of using Retrofin as a personal piggy bank to pay back angry investors in his hedge fund. Screlly has denied the accusations and has filed for arbitration against his old company, which he says owes him at least $25 million in severance pay. And in other news... Cloud-based payroll companies are increasingly expanding into the business of workers' compensation insurance. San Francisco-based Zen Payroll has offered a cloud-based system to automate tax calculations and payroll payments. Its web-based services are already used by more than 20,000 small businesses. The company has now changed its name to Gusto, and is competing in the workers' compensation insurance marketplace. While it was still Zen Payroll, the company's sites were set on helping the 6 million U.S.-based small businesses, places like florists, churches, and salons, that have in the past done payroll by hand. But the company also announced that it will also be rolling out health benefits and workers' compensation to these small businesses. Over the past few months, Gusto has quietly tested health benefits and workers' compensation products. Now, it will offer both services to existing and new accounts starting in California. 
That shift will put the San Francisco-based company in head-to-head competition with Zenefits, the powerful online health insurance broker. Traditionally, the two startups have been partners. Zenefits uses payroll data from the likes of ADP and Zen Payroll to manage its plans, but wants to reduce that dependency. As of late June, Zenefits claimed more than 10,000 accounts. Last year, it generated around $20 million in revenue, and as of May, its valuation was around $4.5 billion. So far, Gusto has raised approximately $86.1 million, including a massive $60 million round from Google Capital last April. As a side note, Google Capital just put $32.5 million into another disruptive insurance startup, Oscar Health. There are also plenty of other companies seeking a piece of the action, including those hoping to empower existing insurance brokers with cloud software such as Ease Central and Maxwell Health. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our websites daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Fols, an attorney with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.